Monday, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Remember, this Thursday, October 29th from 7 to 8.30 p.m., we are going to have a smart politics happy hour But because of all of the madness of this year from the pandemic, we are going to have it on Zoom instead of in person at a local restaurant or bar. So bring your questions about your ballot as well as your thoughts and opinions about all of the national and local races. You can make yourself a drink, sit down in front of your laptop or your desktop or your phone, and we'll talk about all of the things that are going on. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be different than we're used to, but uh, we'll have a good time and we'll have, I'm sure, a really great conversation. So again, Thursday, October 29th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. You need to register before the event begins at WDET.org slash events. As we inch closer to Election Day here on Detroit Today, we're continuing to explore what it means to watch this race unfold through this unprecedented year. A big part of how we're looking at the election this year is through the lenses of various groups that make up the United States, a place that has felt way more divided than united since 2016 and in the years that have followed. Today, we are going to spend the hour examining this political moment through the Latinx perspective. Later in the hour, we'll be joined by a local journalist and then an immigration attorney. But first, and for the entire hour, I'd like to welcome a familiar and friendly voice, Maria Hinojosa. She is an award-winning journalist, news and auth- news anchor and author. She's also the host of Latino USA, which you hear right here on WDET, Saturday mornings at 7 and Wednesday nights at 10. Maria, welcome back to Detroit Today. What's up? <laughs> it's great to hear Steven. your voice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hello, Detroit. So I know you guys are, you're, you're like, why is she so happy? It's because I don't know if you know this, but Detroit was one of the last three places that I visited before, before the shutdown. Yes. And then I got COVID. Yes. No, I, I, I remember that very well. And I remember being very worried that maybe we had we had contributed to that we had this giant event uh, at the Senate Theater on Michigan Avenue just just a week i think before they shut everything down and i thought well was this you know potentially one of those events where where people got sick so i mean we'll uh, never know but yeah. everything is good but i just i love detroit so much and i and i you know how i feel about you Stephen. we're big fans yes. so it's great to be mutual back on. mutual of course. And, and since i saw you my book has been published so yay uh, it's actually a hardcover bravo yeah well uh, tell us tell us about the book oh so <clears throat> it's called once i was you a memoir of love and hate in a torn america mm. um you know i've i um it's a little bit of a thing when you suddenly open up the New York Times and you see that <laughs> it's the editor's pick from the New York right? Times book group, uh, <laughs> and that they picked it. Um, so it's been a v- beautiful experience. Um, in some ways, Stephen, doing a virtual tour is more intense than doing a, an actual tour because when you're doing a virtual tour, you're basically doing you know three to four cities in one day in a day sure wow 
That is because you're just like you know San Antonio, and then I'm in whatever LA, and then I'm going to be in DC, and but you don't have what we had in Detroit, which was that face to face, you know, and and you know Detroit just brought it, yeah. um, and and I just love seeing people's faces. But the book has made a real connection with a lot of different communities, certainly Latinos and Latinas in particular. Um, a lot of journalists are loving reading it because it's a very journalisty memoir. A lot of um, women who are just like into empowerment and feminist issues and living through the women's rights uh, fights of the 1970s. And, mm. um, you know, I talk about being a survivor of rape. I didn't think I was going to be writing about that. But <clears throat> sometimes people think, well, it's a it's a memoir about immigrants. And it's like, well, immigrants are Americans. Yeah. So we're we're experiencing all of those same things. Um, <clears throat> and I would say it's um, it's political in the sense that there's a real effort to give historical context. So it's a historical memoir. Somebody asked me, Stephen, what was the hardest part of writing the book? Mm -hmm. And certainly writing about my assault was the most challenging part and, and feeling very connected to my father throughout the writing, may he rest in peace, was great. But writing the history was hard because I felt like I didn't have the right because I wasn't born here. Hmm. And yet it's precisely because of this perspective that we have to write this history so that we understand that this country, the narrative is we love immigrants. Yeah, yeah. Or more recently, we love Latinos. I mean, you know, 1980s was the decade of the Hispanic, remember? Right, right. <laughs> so, um, and then you have to peel it back and it's like, it's more complicated. And the only way that this country becomes an immigrant friendly, immigrant loving, immigrant open and accepting country is, is each one of us makes it that way. Yeah. Not because of policies, but because of, yes, because of policies, absolutely. But also because what each one of us does yeah. uh, to each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's really powerful. I mean, uh, the, the ability to draw on your own story, to put it in that kind of context, I think is, is a really impressive skill. So, uh, listeners should here's what i say it's like um it's juicy if people like public media juicy there's a lot of public media juiciness there a lot of inside <laughs> baseball stories yeah. but um it's also very intimate and then it's got spinach but you know like when you go and you eat like delicious spinach in an Italian restaurant or at home and somebody's made it with like garlic and lemon and yeah, olive oil. Right. <laughs> like that's the kind of spinach that you're getting in Once I Was You. <laughs> yeah, so listeners, you should uh, you should get out and, uh, and get a copy of that book. Uh, yes, please if, do. If you listen to Detroit Today or if you listen to Latino USA here on Saturdays at 7. And, uh, and send a picture, yes. Send a picture of yourselves, send it to me, and we're doing an Instagram takeover of people taking pictures of themselves with my book. Oh, very cool. Steven, we need a picture of you. Oh, I, that's right. We'll get a copy and uh, I'll, I'll snap a photo. We'll All, right. To you. All right. Okay, so Maria, this has been the longest year that any of us has ever lived, and so many things <laughs> have happened that I can't believe it's only the end Hi. of October, but we are just eight days away from the presidential election. I, I'm really curious how you feel about what's going to happen next week. What, what, what are you predicting 
We will see on November 3rd and in the days after. So here's what I hope. <clears throat> I actually hope that as of right now, um, our colleagues and you as well, everybody, <clears throat> and I know that this is hard, but I really hope that we, one, practice what Dan Rather, the great newsman, uh, Dan Rather has called public patience. I think the news media should be already letting people know that there's a good chance that the election will not be able to be called um, on November, mm. on the night of the election, that there is a good chance that given the number of mail-in ballots that are not counted until election day or afterwards, that we have to kind of wrap our heads around that. Now, what happens if there's a quote-unquote landslide and it's irrefutable? Um, that's where I'm like, uh, what, what happens, you know, but that, which is why I think that the best thing to do is to wait until all of the delegates have given in the, the votes and that is December 6th. That's in December, right? Yeah. December 6th. So that's almost a month. And in fact, I feel like our colleagues in the mainstream media are a little bit lax in preparing and all of us, actually, because this is the mainstream media. So we have to be preparing the public for a month of we don't know yet. And by the way, we've lived through this before. Right. So remember. 2000. Uh, Exactamente. December so before we, we knew. Kind of, exactly. We have to kind of be giving it context. It, don't freak out. It ha has happened before. Yes, this is a, a, a tremendous trepidation. Um, but I think that we have to kind of be cluing that that's what we're expecting. And I, this time, four years ago, I was, there was a lot of kind of celebratory vibe. There was this kind of like people yeah. planning parties. Yep. And I was like, I'm not going to any parties. <laughs> it's like, let's I mean, one, I'm working, two, I don't go to, poor, I don't go to parties, political parties, but you know, any candidate parties, uh, I was like, I'm not going to go to any campaign headquarters. I'm, I'm, nah, no. How am I feeling now? I'm feeling like all of us. Yeah. We don't know. But the silver lining, I'll tell you, Stephen. Um, I'm talking with my adult children, 22 and 24. And we are understanding that this is a moment in history like none other. 2020, yes, the longest year. <laughs> this is incredible. My 22-year-old daughter has been on me. Ma, when are we going? When's the voting plan? What is the voting <laughs> plan? What do we, you know, what? Because things change, life changes, you know, and so we have now have a plan. We are going to early voting tomorrow because the polls are open until seven here in New York, where mm -hmm. we have already been seeing long lines in Harlem. That's my 22-year-old daughter wow. who's on me. She was on the phone last night, phone banking. And four years ago, she was like, you know, political, but, but not thinking that Donald Trump could win. So I think that the youth vote in general and Latino and Latina and black voters, Asian voters, young trans voters, um, Native American voters could, could prove to be, you know, a force. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, I think if you look at early voting, 
and not just in in one state, but sort of the national trend of it and how young it is trending. I, I, I really think that, and again, I mean, I think we have to be really not just cautious, but responsible about the way we talk about what's happening and, and what's going to happen next Tuesday. But but I do think that there is going to be this outsized role that young voters are going to play in this election. And, and these early returns really suggest uh, that that's true. I mean, the way that they're skewing uh, toward toward the young, uh, they are getting out there and making sure that their their vote is cast and their voice is heard. And I think that that produces a different dynamic uh, than than we have seen in in other presidential elections. And I'll tell you something. I've been doing a bit of reporting about the Latino vote for Donald Trump. And so I've been talking to people in Texas, mm-hmm. mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have to be very honest with you. Recently, just last week, I found out somebody who I know who I'm close to has revealed that he is a Donald Trump supporter, mm-hmm. a proud one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this has been a bit of like, what happened? This is somebody who's very pro-civil rights, Latino from the border, businessman, banker. Uh, what happened? Um, you know, in his view, he said uh, it was his wealth management. And I was like, what? And he said, Donald Trump has been great for my retirement, mm. which just really hit me hard because you're prepared to be with a bully against women and children of your own people. Mm-hmm. So that's hard. Now, will his adult children, his children, children, they're in their 30s and 40s, will they vote for Donald Trump? I don't think so. Will their children who are 18, maybe Mm. voting for their, will they vote for Donald Trump? I don't think so. And so now you have a situation where the younger vote, Latino younger, I'm saying even 30 and below, could, could, again, could it be that offset to the older Latino voter who is going for Donald Trump, which is a thing. And this morning I did have a moment where I was like, because, of course, I wake up thinking about this. <laughs> uh, I was like, well, if Donald Trump wins Florida, it's going to be because of Latinos and Latinas. Yeah. That is for sure. Yeah. And they did they they did know how to go after that vote. And um, a shame on the Democrats that they weren't going after that vote hard, consistently, and from the very beginning, if they lose the Latino and Latina vote. Well, and, and you know, I was talking before I came into the studio this morning with one of our producers about a report I saw, and I won't remember where I saw it. It, it, it probably was on CNN, but it, it may have been on another another channel. But it was about young Latino voters in Florida. And it was talking about the, the incredible diversity of uh, opinion and, and approach to this issue that they have. And, of course, they were talking to a lot of, uh, of young people who were either immigrants or the sons and daughters of immigrants from Cuba. And their take on it was really different. A lot of them felt as though uh, the, the, the freedom, the economic freedom that they have in this country is, is among the most important issues and, and paramount. And so they said, look, <clears throat> Donald Trump is, is that kind of leader and, and they were going to support him. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's easy for people who are not members of these communities to look 
from the outside and say, oh, well, they're going to do X or they're going to do right. Y. But when right. you get inside and really start talking to people, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. It's, it's, you know what? Let me give you the scenario of a Latina, um, formerly undocumented evangelical voter, Mexican, where she was very divided because on the issue of immigration, she's very clear where she stands, very Mm pro-immigrant. On the issue of an evangelical and anti-abortion, she's just as firm. So you, you know. Right, so what do you do in that case, right? Right, so many of these young Latinos and Latinas, the first protests that they went to were not um, immigration protests. They were anti-abortion protests. That's real. The Spanish language churches, evangelical, many of them, and even Catholic, um, are very much on the line of uh, anti-abortion vote. So as you say, it is very, very hard to generalize. What what is the generalization that we can make is that we, uh, except for very few news organizations like ours, perhaps yours, the understanding of the complexity of the Latino and Latina vote. Mm -hmm. It is really complex. Um, And it is key because it is a demographic, along with Asians, that is growing the fastest. You know who's going to run for president eventually. It will be Alexandria Mm Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, it's just going to happen. You know, there will be others before her, depending on, you know, when she decides to run. Um, You know, I could foresee a situation where, um, if Biden wins, you know, and then it's Kamala. I mean, wow, that's like really, you know, like you can't, I can't even imagine that. But Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in that, in that kind of uh, cycle, it's going to happen. Yeah. So um, what happens to Latinos and Latinas in the Republican Party? <clears throat> that's, that's what we don't know. But, but they, the Republican Party, did their homework and they reached this one sector which is large and this the dog whistle was if biden wins alexandria ocasio cortez is going to make it into a rabid socialist sure they're going to take your house your bank account and you will lose everything just like you lost it as you say that's a very real threat to people who come in many cases from countries where that kind of thing happens all the time so we cannot diminish these are people who are refugees they may not have come in through refugee maybe they had financial many of them okay perhaps did if you're talking about venezuela but or even cuba but they have lived through something traumatic and so when you when you say that enough over and over again they they're like oh my god it could happen The other thing that was a little bit of a surprise to me, but again, the Democrats, the Democrats should have known better, which was the dog whistle of the cities are out of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Detroit, Chicago, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, the cities, i.e. cities of people of color with Democratic mayors and, and conservative Latinos um, kind of buying into that fear mm. of like he's lost control 
uh, Donald, uh, digo, Joe Biden will lose control of these cities because they're all run by Democrats. And I'm just like, whoa, what? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I live in New York and it's like everything is OK. We're OK. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the president keeps referring to all of these things that that supposedly are going on in cities. And I'm like, well, you know, I live in a city and none of that is happening. It's a fantasy, but it's it's an appealing fantasy, I think, to people who have kind of natural suspicions of uh, of cities who are not sure what is happening. You know, there's images on on televisions that they see that suggest things are 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 you know, being overturned or, or people are just out, you know, tearing the place up. Um, but but it is something that, you know, it's something that sells to a disturbing number uh, of, of people. Um, okay, we're yeah. going to, yeah, go Yes, ahead. yes. No, I was just going to say, in the last election, the people who voted in higher number for, higher number for Trump were in counties, districts that had the least amount of diversity. Mm-hmm. So there is a fear of something that is projected as opposed to, let's talk about this. What, what, what is actually going on? I have, we have a small, teeny, tiny, teeny, tiny cottage, please, <laughs> in Connecticut. Cottage, operative word. And I just found out that our town is like, the, people were saying it's very Trumpy. And I was, and I see the signs, and I'm like, but what is that? And they're afraid of losing everything to people of color and immigrants. And I'm like, but, but we're here in this little tiny town, and we work together. In fact, we employ them. In fact, we're part of like the growth. What, what is the fear? We're, we're in this together. Right. And that's what's so sad about the narrative if we don't have the dialogue, and why we appreciate the work that you do yeah. on WDET. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation with Maria Inahosa, and we're going to welcome a local journalist into the conversation. She's going to talk with us about voter information within the Latinx communities here in Metro Detroit. We also want to hear from you. What are you thinking about as we get closer and closer to Election Day next week? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I am Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We have with us all hour today Maria Inahosa, who is an award-winning journalist, news anchor, and author, the host of Latino USA, which you hear right here on WDET Saturday mornings at 7 and Wednesday nights at 10. She's also co-host of the podcast In the Thick, which is a wonderful, wonderful take on uh, things uh, in the news and with Latino culture. Uh, I will also be a guest on In the Thick next week on election night. Uh, So you'll want to listen to that 
as well. I also want to welcome another voice to the conversation here. We're talking about next week's election and in particular the role that Latinx voters and communities are going to play in it. Serena Maria Daniels is the founder of Tostada Magazine and a local news fellow with First Draft, which is a nonprofit news organization that researches misinformation online and collaborates with newsrooms to fight information disorder. Serena, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So uh, I want to spend some time with you both talking about the role of the pandemic and how it's impacted the way that Latinx communities are thinking about this election. Serena, you've also been doing uh, this work this year, examining how rampant misinformation and disinformation has been in Detroit Spanish-speaking communities amid COVID. Uh, tell us, tell us what you have been seeing. Well, um, I've been seeing. You know, we're kind of all operating as journalists, like in triage. You know, kind. Of responding to all of these unknowns this year, uh, whether it be, you know, am I going to be able to collect my unemployment check? Uh, wh- how, I'm g- how am I going to feed my family? Um, you know, all of like these emergency situations that no one's ever faced really before in our lives. Um, and what I started noticing is, well, I mean, it's a familiar trend, unfortunately, um, here in Metro Detroit. Um, the, this kind of uh, dearth of this critical information being distributed to um, non-English speaking communities. Um, I actually, I, I covered the Flint water crisis years ago and uh, saw the same thing where mm-hmm. Spanish speaking families were not being given information about the situation with the water in Flint. And so uh, church organizations and activists had to actually knock on doors and hold meetings in church basements and stuff like that to get that info out there. And now with this pandemic, it had, you know, it was it was very much the same. Um, and so um, you mentioned Tostada Magazine. Um, I cover food and culture um, in Metro Detroit from a POC perspective. Um, and, you know, like a lot of us, I, I had to pivot uh, my focus. <laughs> it was less of that kind of celebratory feature writing about food and our cultures um, and, and getting some of that breaking news out there and, and having that um, content translated into Spanish. And I really saw this across the board within uh, communities of color and immigrant communities. Um, we ran a story on uh, the cities, uh, the region's uh, Bangladeshi community, which is mm-hmm. outside of New York, the largest uh, Bangladeshi community in the country. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, and it was the same thing, you know, not getting reliable news, fact-checked information, and, um, and this community in particular was very, um, is very much reliant on WhatsApp. And so you're getting forwarded pieces of information. You don't know where they came from. You don't know the motivation behind that, that um, information. And that is kind of used as a, as a you know, a preferred you know, method of, of sharing information. And that's really, you know, that's really uh, alarming, to, to put it lightly, yeah. um, to see that, that um, there are, you know, entire populations. You look at the city of Hamtramck or you look at southwest Detroit, which is pr- predominantly Latino, um, and 
you know, we do have our ethnic media organizations, but they're not necessarily equipped to handle like that late breaking news um, at the drop of a hat. And so that's that's just some of what I've been, you know, honestly observing this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maria, talk about the way that the pandemic is affecting the Latinx communities in terms of their view of this election. Of course, uh, that community, just like the African-American community, was hit harder uh, than than many other communities by COVID. Uh, Is it going to drive votes, though? And are those votes uh, going to maybe cut against the president who's been in charge of all of this uh, while while these communities have been suffering? I mean, uh, last night <clears throat> um, we had more news that my husband's, another friend of my husband's died of COVID. Uh-huh. Um, yes, in the Dominican Republic, but still, um, that, that was what my life was like, basically a death a week, if yeah, not more. Sure. Um, so for Latinos and Latinas, this is very personal. Um, I was thinking this morning about it, people who continue to get infected, and it's because they have to go back to work in unsafe conditions, right? Um, I mean, I've, I, ha- I have not been out much, but the few times that I have taken a lift, there has been a couple where there is no divider between in the car. And I'm a little bit like, like, I'm okay. I open the window, but I'm like, why isn't this person able to be safe? Maybe he can't afford to put the divider in his car yet, you know, because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It probably costs. So, so we are the ones who are continuing to be the essential workers, continuing to be exposed. So it is very personal. On the other hand, you know, because it's personal, you've lost family and friends, you're exhausted, you're working three jobs, you know, there's there's no unemployment coming into your home for whatever. Maybe it makes it more difficult to vote, although hopefully you had the opportunity to get a vote, a ballot. But so I kind of feel like it goes both ways. On the one hand, we're the ones most impacted. On the other hand, we're also the ones most impacted by life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can make it, unless it's like a super priority, can make it just hard. Um, so I, I, I think it's a hard one. But what is true, <laughs> I mean, we are feeling this to our core, Latinos and Latinas, still. Yeah. Um, still. In fact, this the place before I came to Detroit was Mississippi. Um, and I remember I was just like, oh, my God, if it gets to Mississippi, to these small towns where the chicken processing plants are, mm-hmm. that'll be. And that's exactly where it's gone. And it's still there. And the numbers are growing there. So and, and people are still going to work because chicken and pork and meat processing plants have been deemed essential. Um, so it's it, it's complicated because it's very personal. And how will that impact us getting to the polls is whether or not we have access to the polls. And again, that's where it's like, okay, are you trusting your mail-in ballot? Did you get in ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera? It's it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to get uh, some callers involved in this conversation. Let's go to Karen in Detroit. Karen, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for taking my call, uh, Stephen. Uh, I've been a fan of... Maria Inosa for a long time. I listened to Latino USA every Very weekend. Good. I was at the theater when you were here in Detroit. Loved it. It was great. Here's my question. Um, you were talking about generational differences and uh, 
among families and Latino communities and where grandparents and parents and their kids are. I know that at one point uh, there was a good collaboration between the Latino community here in Detroit and African-American community around labor, particularly in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And there was a large Mexican-American population in southwest Detroit. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of collaboration around the UAW and labor issues. And I wonder, I don't know if there's that silk collaboration around social justice issues that both communities might share in common, but I don't see collaboration in this election on any kind of issues or working together. Hmm. And I wanted to get your reaction. That's a really interesting uh, question, Karen. You know, Maria, when you were here, we were talking a little about uh, the lack of coordination and collaboration across communities from between uh, Latinos and uh, and African Americans. Uh, but But how does that look in this election, is there is there some sort of coalition that uh, that's trying to get people out to vote? That's trying to make sure people know how to vote. That kind of thing. Is it is it is it multicultural this time? Well, I mean, because since we saw each other, George Floyd was murdered mm-hmm. and Breonna Taylor was murdered, mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter movement became a massive, massive, uh, popular movement across the country, where many white people. And Latinos and Latinas were marching with African Americans and Black brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. so that in and of itself is something that has shifted things. You know, I think if I was an activist, which I am not, but if I was an activist, I would be absolutely pushing much more the relationship between, you know, abolish the police. Uh, abolish ICE, uh, the prison industrial complex, mass incarceration, and immigrant detention, deportation, industrial complex. I mean, I don't know, Stephen, because we were, everything happened so quickly, but I spent time in Detroit in that visit when I was there. Was it February or March? It was March, right? It was right? March, yeah. It was March. So one of the things that ha- impacted me so much, and by the way, I love the caller. What a super fan. Love you, sis. Um, Was hearing the stories of Latinos and Mexicans from Detroit who were recollecting their family members being deported from Detroit in the 1930s. So African-Americans were being lynched. Mexican-Americans were being deported and lynched, by the way. Mm-hmm. So we need to make these connections. We need to talk about the history of exclusion. And I would think, given that right now what you're talking about in terms of the prison industrial complex and immigration, this is about making money at this point. This is about um, deconstructing an entire system that makes money off of putting our bodies in cells yeah. Yeah. or deporting them. Um, so I do think that what happened in last, I don't know if I want to call it a presidential debate, because I, as I said on, in the thing, the presidential debate commission needs to be decommissioned and recommissioned. <laughs> Let's do that over, right? <laughs> do, like the whole thing. But Joe Biden did say that he is going to um, begin a legalization process. Yeah, he did. Um, that, and, and that this is something that's going to happen in the first 100 days. We shall see. Um, I was hoping that he would say the next thing, which is, and we will be doing a massive reunification process Hmm. because the United States has the best intelligence in the world. So this notion that we cannot find the families of 545 plus plus uh, children, 
that is not true. You can find them if you really wanted to. And right. he needs to make that commitment. And by the way, it's much more than 545. Right. Anyway, so the point is, is that activists and people like us need to be showing that groundwork of we've done this in the past and we need to see ourselves in each other and open up the conversations. And again, that's why I keep on putting it back to the listener. Yeah. Like you and I do this, Stephen. It's the listener who has to do it in making democracy and Latino and Latina coalition building, as it were, part of their lives and how they live and how they operate in this world. Right. Uh, I, uh, I Serena, think, um, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I, I was going to ask you to... about this multi-language glossary that you're developing around yeah. voter engagement, well, which is really, uh, really relevant to this part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, I just wanted to kind of follow up with um, what you guys are talking about, this idea of like kind of a multicultural coalition. We did have a chance to cover some of the um, protests, uh, Black Lives Matter protests in Detroit. Um, specifically, there's a group, uh, Stephen, you're here with Detroit Will Breathe. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's made up of, of youth, of young people uh, may, or might, may not even be registered to vote or old enough to vote. But, uh, but I definitely saw, you know, folks, you know, of, of you know, Latinx, uh, African American, white, queer, gender, um, you know, kind of like this, this, you know, like we're talking about this coalition together at these protests. Um, you know, they were um, situated in downtown Detroit right. and then also in Clark Park. Um, and then I've, I've been seeing um, influx murals being created around, you know, voter engagement. Um, one mural stands out to me at the And I believe it says, Tu lucha es mi lucha. So that would mean uh, your fight is my Right. Idea of solidarity. So I think it is coming together, but it, it's it's you know very much still a, a grassroots effort at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to talk to you about glossary that I'm developing. Um, so going back to my point about uh, language access um, and to be able to get that critical information. Um, I uh, put together a number of keywords um, just to just to kind of inform people um, on the very basics of like you know uh, deadlines. When can I mail in my ballot? If I haven't mailed it in, where can I take it? What's a ballot box? Like just very um, you know kind of like fundamental right, but crucial um, information. Yeah. Right, right. And so uh, we went ahead, I, I hired a, a number of translators to work with and editors. Um, uh, one of the issues that I kind of ran into and that a lot of people who are translating content um, run into is this idea that you can just like hand off, you know, some text to an individual and they'll go ahead and translate it um, and it, it, it will you know, it will kind of like translate perfectly. Um, you actually really need to have conversations with other native speakers and be able to go back and forth so that the actual nuances of that content are, are picked up. Otherwise, you're not really doing a service for, for voters. Um, and so 
We um, and, and I received funding from the American Press Institute to uh, be able to support this project. Um, and I'm working in collaboration, obviously, with First Draft. Um, and so we've gone ahead and translated this content into um, Bengali and Arabic. And um, I'm still working on it. We're, I'm basically creating infographics that can be shared online. Um, they can, and I'm, I'm distributing that information to uh, some of the local news organizations in Detroit, mm-hmm. and so that they can share that info on their social media channels. And then I'm also printing the material and posting it up at supermarkets, laundromats, places where people gather, um, because we do know that um, you know social media or online like that might not be effective. Communication for uh, communities, and so having that printed material as well will definitely be helpful. Yeah, right. Uh, ink on paper still matters in a lot of in a lot of places. Okay, uh, Serena Maria Daniels, it was really great to have you here for this part of the conversation. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. You. Right. Thank you, and I'll just add that Maria, I was for journalists and some of the activists here in Detroit um, at Lenordia Beast. So it's kind of a full moment, if you will. Um, Thank you for your work, sweetie. We appreciate it so much. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with another familiar voice, a local immigration attorney, Gladys Bermudez, about how she's feeling and what she's hearing on the ground in the days just before the election. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Welcome back to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest this hour is Maria Hinojosa, the host of Latino USA, award-winning journalist, news anchor, and author. We're talking about what's going to happen in just eight days when we all go to the polls. We're also talking, of course, about the impact of all of what's happening on Latinx communities around the country and the role that Latinx voters might play in the presidential election. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Tell us what you're looking forward to. Tell us what you're thinking about as we get closer and closer to Election Day. I want to welcome another voice to the conversation as well, Miglanis Bermudez is staff attorney with Justice for Our Neighbors Michigan uh, and has been a guest on the show before. Miglanis, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's uh, my honor. Yes. Uh, Miglanis also was with us that uh, fateful night in March <laughs> when we had yes. so much fun with uh, Maria and the others from Latino USA and in the thick here in Detroit at the Senate Theater. So, Miglanis, let's talk first uh, what what you are seeing and what you're thinking about as we inch toward Election Day next week. Yes, I am extremely anxious. I don't think I've been so anxious about an election in my entire uh, voting history. I have been voting since 
Bush son. So it's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm very anxious. Um, I think a lot of the uh, Latino community in Southwest, the uh, uh, Southwest Detroit, the Latino community that's more politically active uh, in the media or in in the area are also anxious. Um, we don't. What I have seen is I'm the only, and I don't know if this means anything, but to me it does. I have the only yard sign of the entire maybe four or five blocks area of my community. And my community is never big on like promoting who they're voting for, Mm -hmm. even uh, doing that such thing. But I thought that this election might have been a little different, but I I guess I'm wrong. Mm. I'm hoping that doesn't reflect on the excitement or the urgency of this election. I've I'm just anxious. I'm very yeah. anxious. To I think say a lot that of I feel like are. it's going to go well. Yeah. 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 So yeah. so as an immigration attorney, talk about what you think this election means to the Latinx uh, community. Yeah. I this election might be and I'll go on the record saying this the most important election in the last decade or more mm. uh, for immigrants' rights. Um, the Trump administration has created over 200 anti-immigrant policies. It's over 200, and it they're all anti-immigrant policies. They affect immigrants one way or another. Sometimes legal immigrants, sometimes undocumented immigrants sometimes even green card holders, right? But it's affecting over 200 policies affecting immigration. And because immigration is a federal federal agency, a federal law, he doesn't need to go through Congress to make these changes. So the Trump administration has been making these changes from one day to another. My job has become extremely difficult being an immigrant in the United States, especially an undocumented immigrant has become extremely difficult, more difficult than it was during the Obama administration, which I was critical of and continue to be critical of when it comes to immigration policies. So it's very important um, for immigrant rights advocates, for immigrants themselves that are able to vote, to take into consideration those that are being affected by these laws. Um, Just a couple of days ago at at the debates, He said something that I think every immigration attorney lost their mind when he said that people, immigrants that go to their final hearing have low IQ. Yeah, he did. Um, When he said that. Yes, exactly. He said that. It was Um, just, it was so, it it was so horrible. Sorry to interrupt, but it was like, here's this person saying that the only people who follow the law are, in his view, low IQ refugees. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, we follow the law because we make a commitment and understand the judicial process. I'm sorry. I, I just, that, that particular moment was so horrific. And the fact that he wasn't called on it, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm angered just, by it, was, it too. I think everyone that does immigration uh, rights or, or, or believes in immigrants and, and, and sees the value in immigrants was like, what? You know how it's, it was just, I was very upset by it. And it's, it brings such a contradictory message when the attorney, the judges, the whole society is saying, try to do things right, right? Go to your hearings. It's important. You never know. And then the president of the United States is calling you dumb yeah. for doing that. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of writing 
uh, immigration-wise, just the policies, um, DACA. I still do not understand what has happened with Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Right. All of a sudden, the, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor, basically, you know, we're going to keep it alive. I know there's some nuances there, but the administration is still not accepting applications. They will renew, but they're not accepting new applications. So they basically decided we're going to interpret this however we want. Right, right. Um, Which means that basically I, what, what he said, his answer to the only question ever asked about immigration policy during the entire debates, mm-hmm. um, he actually did not answer and lied. Right. Um, he, mm-hmm. he is not working on any of those things. None of that is 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 true. So that that was particularly hard for us because the entire campaign that he ran on four years ago was an anti-immigrant campaign. And so four years later that no one is kind of putting his feet to the fire and holding him accountable for all of this human rights mess. Um, yeah, the, I, I just when people say what's you know, what's the country going to do about immigration? And I don't know about you. But my feeling is at this point, we don't have an immigration problem, quote unquote problem. We have an international human rights abuse Mm -hmm. at this point. This is the International Court of The Hague should be opening. I mean, women's uteruses are being taken and children's parents can't be found in a country that knows how to operate, send a man to a moon or the woman to the moon. Exactly. You're kidding. And no one is talking about it. Our lives are therefore dispendable. And this is the horror that, so that anxiety you feel, this is the horror because even if Joe Biden wins, um, this kind of work is going to have to take place. It doesn't just all change. Um, mm-hmm. Because of one yeah. of one election, we're gonna we're gonna run out of yeah. time here. We've got about thirty seconds left. Uh, Gladys, I, I'm really glad uh, you joined us. G- give us a sense of what you think we're going to see next week. What's going to happen here in Detroit in terms of our turnout and the results? Yeah, yeah. I I've heard and seen by example that the turnout in Michigan, at least Michigan has increased. Early voting is increased per all, you know, media. Yeah. Um, early voting is higher than it was in 2016, which is a great thing. I think that means that more people are being more active politically. Um, in my household, we all absentee except for my dad, who believes that he's going to go <laughs> in and do it by I, himself. I'm, I'm but, with your dad. That's what I'm doing. Love too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's, just, love he's, just, he's not sure of all this absentee voting. Yeah. So he's like, I'm going to go do it myself. Yeah. But I, I feel that there, I am hopeful that Detroit is going to show up as it always has, right? We might not have the highest voting, um, you know, light, uh, line around here, but I think that it's going to show up and I'm hoping that that's what happens. All right. Uh, Migladis Bermuda, it's always great to have you here. And of course, Maria Inahosa, love when you are here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. We're going to talk with city officials and journalists about Detroit's proposal. And this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.